pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Week That Was with Joe Palmisano. Dr. Daniel Erickson and Artin Masihi, co-owners of Accelerated Urgent Care. They have really revolutionized the urgent care experience throughout California, uh, offering average wait times of 15 minutes and comprehensive care. But now uh, they are known worldwide for their press conference a few weeks ago. That has been viewed by millions of people worldwide. And Dr. Erickson, thank you so much for the time you've taken to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you take a little bit of time to just talk about the backgrounds of yourself and Dr. Masihi? Yeah, we we met in residency. We both did residency at Kern County, which is, uh, I believe, it was still a level two trauma center. And uh, we trained there. I was there for four years. He was there for three years. And we went on to run a Kaiser facility, and then we started uh, building medical practices about eight years ago. And, uh, yeah, so we're both trained in emergency medicine. We did that for a few years. Then we worked in urgent cares. Now we're both entrepreneurs, and we see patients periodically uh, at this point. But uh, this press conference came out of uh, we were just – I was analyzing data, and – I had been called by some of the media outlets and said, do you have numbers? I know you're doing testing. I said, okay, well, why don't we just, oh, we'll just do it all at once. There's three major networks in town. I said, let's just, I'll just go over some basic statistics that are my opinion of what's going on. There was a lot of opinions coming from everywhere. And I said, why don't I just go over and give you guys, I want to be transparent so the city knows how much have you done. I said, I had done at the time 5,213 tests. You know, 340 positive at 6.5%. This is a moment in time. This test we're using is a, is a nasal swab. It tells you yes or no, but it could be negative today, positive tomorrow. So it was just a moment in time to give the city some idea of what was going on. And you continued it then. You went further into the whole of California, New York, uh, the country. Well, yeah, I was just trying to basically say, you know, we're not we're getting these estimates of millions of people dying. And I said, what is happening right now is California. I actually have the numbers right here. I'll just grab them. And I went through it and I said, the numbers today are California on that day was had done two hundred ninety thousand nine hundred tests. And I was using Worldometer at the time. And 33,865 were positive. Well, that's 12%. Now, that's not randomized data from a study. All I was pointing out is we've done this many tests and this many are positive. 12% of the tests are positive. If, if that were an accurate range, in my opinion, that would say we have a few million cases in California. And at the time, we had 1,227 1, deaths out of a state of 40 million. So I was trying to give people some semblance of if people that don't study numbers, I like numbers, I said, this, these are the numbers that are being reported. And so people are like, how much, how much death is there? 
in Kern County. I think yesterday we had had six or seven. So I was just basically getting numbers out there saying these are a moment in time. These are not peer-reviewed, biostatistically analyzed numbers. I, that wasn't my point to it. My point was just to show people, here's where California is at, New York. Here's a basic overview of how much testing we've done, how much was positive. And if you, if you took that to the population, that's what you'd see. That's not, that's not how a statistician would look at data, and that's not what I was trying to do. I was right. basically trying to show a small news group in Kern County what our county was like compared to California, New York, and different countries that are doing testing. You know, and you're not out of the ordinary. I mean, even Governor Cuomo came out a couple weeks back, and I talked about it last week on my show, where he said because of the antibody testing they've done in New York that he can extrapolate out that there was probably 2.7 million people that had been infected statewide in New York. So he was doing basically the same thing. And if you, uh, Dr. Daniel Murphy, MD, Chairman of Emergency Medicine in the Bronx, was in the heat of this battle. He put out a post today. He, he also had COVID-19 as an ER doctor working through this pandemic. And they, he said, I'd like to report today, this came out today, 43% of everybody tested in the Bronx was, co- was positive for COVID-19. 43% of all tests were positive. What, what, what I was trying to do was I was saying we have these models that are coming out saying 2 million people are going to die. And I want to say at a snapshot in time, here's how many tests we've done. Here's how many positives. This is, this is raw data unfiltered by a biostatistician. This is just what's out there right now. It was my opinion. It was an opinion piece. And uh, the media streamed it live. And now it's gone around the nation and globally. How do you feel about this right now, Dr. Erickson? Do you, I mean, you were you were presenting a news conference and basically talking to your local media people about what's going on in Kern County and what's going on maybe at some of your other facilities. But now it's gotten to a point where it's it's created this big debate. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I think that's probably great. But uh, are you feeling like you have to pull back from what you said? Uh, if, if you've been watching me, I have pulled back zero. I, I have gone on every major news outlet from Laura Ingram to different Fox shows. Hannity's scheduling us. I have not pulled back from anything. I, I'm telling people here's that when I talk to when I listen to the, the statements and the media interviews from Dr. Gisek and Dr. Tegnellen from Norway, from Sweden, excuse me, they are saying there's no scientific data for shelter in place and for maintaining social distancing. Actually, that came from Dr. Vitowski. The Swedish have said, we have asked, we have asked people to decrease some of their interactions at a moderate level. We're still working. Kids up to 16 are still in school. We're limiting groups less than less than 50, and they're taking basic measures, and it's working. You look at the data; it's working. So I'm going. We have crushed our economy. Trillions of dollars are being spent. I have business owners. In fact, yesterday called me and said, "I I've got a couple coffee shops. They're going under. I don't know what to do." I've had other. I had a, a gentleman this morning, 23 year old, struggles with depression, lost his job. He, he went in the hospital last night due to alcohol and drug overdose. He's in the ICU on a vent. I have another gentleman that I was called on today 
a friend of mine's uncle. He was dying of cancer for years. He died today. And guess what they called the death? COVID. So this, this kind of stuff is going on. When you shine the light in dark places, I, I have gotten a, a significant backlash. I, I can't even begin to tell you the backlash. I, I was just saying medical societies are denouncing me. I've been called a gunslinger, a clown, a fraud. I mean, you name it. People cursing me out online that have never met me for just displaying some basic facts that are a moment in time and were my opinion. I have heard you repeatedly say, follow the science. So why are people attacking you for that? Well, people have different agendas for why they do what they do. I'm not a psychiatrist. I am a urgent care doctor and an entrepreneur at this point. Um, people say, you're not an ER doctor. I say, that's true. I don't work in ERs anymore. I did for years, and I, I did something different with my life. I was trained in emergency medicine. I no longer work in that. So that, that is true. And so I am being honest with who I am, and I'm, I'm listening to Dr. Vitowski. I've interviewed him twice. He's a, he has a master's in biostatistics. He's a man who spent his whole life studying medical data. And so I have these people in my life that I'm looking to saying, how do you understand what's going on, Dr. Vitowski? How, do, you, do you think there is good reasons? Is this coronavirus indeed something way out there we've never seen before? And their answers have been, this is similar to a severe flu. As I quote Dr. Giseki, this is similar to a severe flu. Dr. Vitowski also said, this is similar to a severe flu. The numbers indicate deaths are in the 60,000, which we've seen before in 2017, 2018 per CDC website. And herd immunity is really the discussion I always try to focus on because most people don't understand how it's. Let's explain that, please. Herd immunity is how we get over the flu every year. People, I've been watching flus for 15, 16 years. People get the flu. They, they spread it to one another. And after you get to 70 to 80%, there's nowhere left for it to go, and the virus burns out. We have a vaccine for the flu. Vaccine takes us to herd immunity quicker and gets us to that 70% quicker. Every year there's a season called cold and flu for the medical types. Every year it's from December through December, January through March. It's usually about three to four months, typically. And we all get ready for it. Our volumes go up 40%. We all get ready. Hospital tents get put out. We do this every year. It's called surge capacity. New York hospitals had it. They put a few tents in Central Park. This is all kind of stuff we've, we've been down this road before. So when they say that uh, this is, you know, the worst thing on record, you know, the, the Spanish flu killed 50 million people. We've lost 60 you talk about this is the first time in our history that we have quarantined healthy people instead of the sick. Can you explain that? Well, when, when you have in, in the biblical days of old, as you know, when you had a leper, you didn't ask the entire city to lock in their houses while the leper walked around the city. You took the leper outside the city, you isolated them, and that's how you handled disease. And when we've had measles and a variety of other things, we isolated those people, we vaccinated the healthy, and we got through it. Never before in my 40 years have I seen lockdowns where we say, oh, no, there's a bad virus. You know, go lock yourself in your house. Don't talk to anyone. Don't go to church. And here's where their logic breaks down, if I may. 
I can go to Costco and interact with 200 people. I can go to Home Depot and interact with 200 people. I can go through a drive-through at Del Taco and have someone wrap my burrito in plastic that transfers and acts as a, a fomite or a, a disease transferring instrument into my home. I can do all these things, but if I go to the beach or church, now we're getting we're going to arrest you. See, that doesn't make sense from a medical scientific standpoint. Disease is going to move through society through your delivery man who comes delivering your your Amazon. It's going to come through your doctor who you see in the emergency department. These are going to spread disease around. Most people get through this with little to no significant illness. 95% get over it. Numbers are not being talked about. And I, I think it's time, and that's why I've spoken out, is because we were told 2 million people were going to die by, by models from the, the chief physician in the United States right now who, who's controlling the, the, the narrative. Well, what do we know today? Total deaths in the United States, 64,914. Now, those are people that COVID was added to their diagnosis. And I always tell people this. You have to understand, I signed lots of death certificates and put down the source of why someone died. And when I see people today, today in fact, who died of a different cause and indeed were told that they died from COVID, something, something is not right here. So even, even deaths that are being called COVID, people die from pneumonia. They die from acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, you might hear. They die from hypoxia. They die from sepsis or bacteria in the blood. That's what they die from. When you get COVID and you get respiratory issues, you typically die from pneumonia. So what I'm saying to people is, unless you see the death certificate, you, you are just you were just listening to what they told you they died from. Can you take a moment, because I found this intriguing, is is to explain the difference between Norway and Sweden as far as the data is concerned? Yeah, so Norway is in complete lockdown. As you know, my people are from Norway. That's my background. Norway has a death rate per million today of 39. It's lower. Now, when we talk about that compared to, let me just pull up, uh, the numbers today, it was 225 yesterday. Let me see where Sweden is today. Sweden is at 263. And you say, aha, look at that. And I say, no, Norway is in lockdown. Of course you're going to have a lower death per million. Their deaths will come later as they open up society. The, 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 the uh, biostatisticians that I'm talking to say, they might have a secondary spike because everybody's been sheltering and not interacting. Once they interact, then their death rate will pick up. Now, Sweden will likely have a very stable, nice uh, flattening of the curve and a dropping off because they haven't, they haven't done the, the same lockdown as Norway. And people look at this in a moment in time and say, aha, this makes sense. Norway is the right model. And I say, no, Sweden is the right model. Sweden didn't crush their economy, spend trillions, have anxiety, depression, alcoholism on the rise. Why? Because of a lockdown economy. The United States is in a free fall right now. Small businesses are getting paralyzed. And we have to say, is the collateral damage indeed worse than the disease itself? What you're saying is, and let me get this right, that this is going, as soon as we open it up, 
it's going to spike. And then we're going to close it down again. Then we're going to open it up again, and it's going to spike, and it's going to continue this whole process until we finally just treat it like we would the flu. Am I right? Yeah, I think you are right, and this is what this is what the epidemiologists and biostatisticians are saying. I'm using Sweden, and the, the World Health Organization, their executive director, said we have things to learn from our Scandinavian friends in Sweden. They have done it right, and I applaud them because they stood in the face of worldwide criticism, saying that they are going rogue. And I'm, I, I applaud them, and I said they they made the best decision globally on how to treat coronavirus in their society. Now, we can't say that emphatically. We won't know that until the, this whole thing's over. Then we're going to go back and look at the data. No matter if, if you lock down, if you don't, this virus is going to move through and get its herd immunity no matter what. And the problem when you lock down is it drags this whole process out. It could cause a spike later on. And in the United States case, it's crushing our economy. So you, you say to yourself, we're going to have a similar cycle, according to the experts. Why would we lock down? This is going to hurt our health system in the long run with these hospitals that are just shutting down everything, laying off people, doing all this stuff, and just treating nothing but COVID. In the long run, it's going to hurt us. Well, I'll quote one of my ER colleagues in Wisconsin. He said, he said, Dan, I just finished a night shift. I saw patients who should have come in three or four days ago for chest pain, and they didn't. So they'll likely have more permanent damage than they would have otherwise by coming in. And he had he had several cases like that. And he said, that's one shift. So when you decrease hospital volume, you furlough doctors, you furlough nurses, and then you tell orthopedic surgeons like my brother-in-law, you tell them you can't practice. And you tell them if you practice, you will face fines and possibly jail time for repairing someone. There's something there's something wrong. Because telling, telling a person who can't walk due to a hip fracture that their surgery is non-essential, I don't know who's making that call, but if it's your hip and you're laying there for weeks and you develop a, a deep vein thrombosis, this is an essential surgery. And, and the crazy thing is when you walk the halls of Texas, because I call their doctors, they say our, our ORs are empty, um, our ICUs are fairly underutilized, we, we are nowhere near needing any surge capacity, and our, our doctors, our critical orthopedics, plastics, all kinds of stuff are being told you're non-essential. Yeah. So I'm really raising questions going, folks, use your basic common sense. This is not the way we deal with a disease process like this. I don't think it's the right way to do it. I, I wanted to ask you about other things that you're seeing. Depression secondary effects of of sheltering well now again this is i have i have talked to a lot of people and i have i have talked to patients who have uh expressed to me their concern their anxiety their depression i've heard from other doctors about alcoholism i have heard about increase in suicide matter of fact i have a case this morning as i talked to you about that's directly in my realm of influence and they called me and said, this individual has tried to commit suicide as a young person with depression due to a loss of a job, and he already had some, some symptoms. All this kind of stuff is going on. And I, I think we just need to have an honest discussion about it and, and not try to put a rag in the mouth of those of us 
that are trying to have an honest discussion and say, did we do and are we doing the best thing for the country? I realize that this disease going on and people are dying. I realize that and I'm sensitive to that. And I want to do the best I can for all patients. And on the other hand, I want to do the best I can for my community that is hurting from no income, depression, anxiety, and alcohol abuse. So there's a delicate balance with weighing collateral damage of COVID with the actual damage from the disease itself. I Googled you, and when I Googled you, obviously most of it's negative. Um, and, and, and I get that. I understand how that, that operates. I'm not naive. But I, I want you to talk about the overwhelming support you have gotten from physicians, nurses, hospital executives, other people. Well, that's, 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 the, that's the bright light in this whole thing is doctors around the country. I was on with one doctor from Arizona yesterday who is, he's a family practice guy, very smart, well-trained. And he said, you know, uh, I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing. And ER doctors, and I read about an ER doctor in New York who said, hey, this thing is lightening up. We need to get back to work. He said, I live in a poor community, and these people have no job. They have no money. There's all kinds of secondary problems socially happening from shutting down the economy that are becoming a ma- the major issue. So, yeah, doctors like that, ER doctors have called, multiple doctors have called saying, we support what you're doing. You know, they don't feel necessarily the strength to, to push against what's happening. So, you know, we just we, we didn't we didn't plan this. This fell into our laps for whatever reason. Uh, I don't know what the plan is for it. I don't I don't I don't know what God's plans are for things. I I merely am trying to be a good steward of the data, and and speak about truth, and make a case for opening up the state of California, and getting the economy moving again because it's causing so much hurt for the average American out there. What are the dangers of opening? versus the dangers of not opening. And, and that really is kind of the crux of this whole conversation we're having. Well, the, the risk with opening is a disease spike. The risk with opening is that the virus takes off again. We have an increase in spike. I don't know if this is going to happen. Nobody knows. Uh, Sweden has not been locked down, but they are doing some social distancing. They are limiting big groups. They are doing certain things to limit interaction, but it's a rational approach. All their kids are in school. Most of the businesses are open. They're, now, they didn't close down. So once you close down, and this is what the epidemiologist has said, we don't know what's going to happen because we haven't done this before. So when you close down, isolate people, I don't think anybody can tell you from the top on down, here's what's going to happen because their models were predicting 2 million people were going to die. And then they said a million, they've been bringing it down and down. It, it just seems like kind of guesswork, honestly. So uh, I think the bottom line is we don't know. We have to, and that's why a stepwise approach, Dr. Giseki uses a ladder. He said, you know, the U.S. climbed up this ladder. Now it's the time to come down in a stepwise fashion. They have a massive economy. Their, their economy their lack of importing, exporting right now is affecting the world globally. So they need to come down in a stepwise approach. Open it. He, he suggested open up the schools, kids 16 and under, send them back to school, give that some time, see how it does. 
open up other businesses in a stepwise fashion. I think that's a rational approach. And I think that's what we're doing. Uh, Governor DeWine in Ohio is is doing exactly that. Yeah, we're in uncharted territory, I think, is the bottom line. And we have to keep a dynamic mindset, open it up, you know, let it come back. And, and I'm hoping we don't we don't take this approach again. I'm hoping we look at Sweden and say, next time we have something coming that we're unsure about, that's viral, that's causing death, let's make sure we make a good decision. Because this time around, it's, you know, it's debatable on if this was the right technique. But now looking back, I think it's time to pivot and get things open. Um, we're going to have some increasing disease. There's no question. We're going to have some more deaths from this. Whether we open up now or in six months, it's going to happen. I thank you so much for your time. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Now back to the week that was with Joe Palmisano. All right, we are very fortunate to have. Uh, it's not working still. John got it to work. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Stan Anderson with us. And uh, Stan, thank you so much for um, for coming on. I, I correct me. Am am I right with explain herd immunity to me with viruses? Yeah, the, the, the first off, the whole thing about herd immunity is we don't know how many people have it. But if you get a certain percent of the population, and depending on which virus it is or which infection it is, then the herd immunity number changes. But basically, if you get enough people in the population that get the disease and then are immune to it, then the likelihood of the disease spreading throughout the community is dramatically less. So herd immunity simply means because other people are protected, I am now protected. Okay. Now, with, with, with that in mind, does a virus have to go through herd immunity for it to stop? Well, almost any infection needs to go through the herd immunity for it to be diminished. Um, so even like the influenza, we try to get... It herd immunity by giving everybody the flu shots, and clearly it's beneficial, but it's not perfect. So the short answer is uh, probably. Okay, so if if it has to go through this process, if it's a natural process that it has to, let's say, 70% of the people, right? if you close down but the virus is still there and it hasn't infected 70%, when you open up, it's naturally going to then start infecting again, right? Yes. Okay. So how do you, the the longer we shut down, the longer this process is going to take. Correct. Flattening the curve does not mean that you're going to decrease the area under the curve. So we're not talking about if we just do these things, we are going to prevent the coronavirus from being an issue. No, the whole reason of flattening the curve was to give us more time so that we could come up with some type of solutions, some type of treatments, something that we can give to people. Right now, 
we got virtually nothing. Even the remdesivir, the brand new one that everybody's talking about, that's on compassionate use. We don't even have any in Stark County. So we're in a still a holding pattern because we got no good treatment. So, so as we start to open, we're going to see, we're likely going to see more a spike because it has to go through this process of infecting a certain amount of people. So you're absolutely right. I wouldn't say maybe. I would say guaranteed that we're going to get more people that are going to get it. As long as those people are relatively healthy and they're under 45, the likelihood of it being a catastrophe is really, really low. Okay, so... And my then, so I'm 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 on the right track when I'm saying that if it spikes and we close down again, we're just delaying the process. That that is correct. And and just uh, one final comment um, on the CNN response to Dr. Erickson. Their whole comment was: when you look at Sweden, their death rates have gone up. It is now 22 per hundred thousand. And when you think about it magnify that to uh, the United States, that would be a total of 60 million people, excuse me, 60,000 people that would potentially die from this disease, which is right in line with what they were predicting from the get-go. So from a pragmatic point of view, basically the young people that are going to be starting to get out, the likelihood of them getting it, the thing that you don't want to do is to spread this to the people that are older and people that have significant medical diseases. So wouldn't it be wise then to tell those people that <laughs> that that are sick that that have that have underlying medical conditions that are that are more uh, susceptible to getting the serious complications from this that you stay home and everybody else go out? Yeah, and, and that is the most logical, that is the most, um, uh, I, I mean, that's the one that makes the most amount of sense. Let younger people who don't have a significant risk of having a problem if they get coronavirus, let them go to work. Let them get back into the economy because we cannot afford to stay locked up for the next two years, which was the latest prediction by an epidemiologist out of Stanford that said, we will not be able to avoid lockdown for the next two years. That's crazy. Wow. So, but, but this virus has got to run its course. And, like, it's, and it's going to run its course like a freight train, regardless of whether we close down and delay for six months or six weeks or two months. Sooner or later, it's going to run its course. True. The biggest thing, though, is by giving us time, we have the ventilators. We never really ran out of ventilators. We have some progressive treatments. Remdesivir is now something that we think is going to be beneficial, even though nobody can get it. And <laughs> we now see the possibility of a vaccine as soon as the end of the year. So we're seeing changes that are monumental that really are having an effect. So, yes, this is going to be ameliorated and turned down. But we have to, the problem is we can't wait till January to reopen. <laughs> oh, man, that is, that's the bill. 
trillion, excuse me, trillion dollar question what, that basically you see it breaking down along party lines. The states that tend to be the blue states, they are the ones that are the more hard hit. They are the ones that are the more conservative. They are the, I mean, as far as um, allowing their uh, citizens to get out. And the question is, is it constitutional? You brought that point up. So, yes, why not let younger people get out and enjoy life? That's the big issue. Wow. So Dr. Erickson really wasn't that far off. So the, the points that he made are accurate points. The, the numbers that he pointed out are accurate numbers. The, the big concern or the big question is, are his numbers based on an actual population study as opposed to just the people that ended up showing up in his urgent cares? So there's a question about population sampling. Again, that's an epidemiological issue. But basically, he is telling us what his data is. And by promoting his data, he comes up with a conclusion, which is different from what the national uh, um, institutes of health are coming up with. So just really interesting. It's just one more interesting wrinkle. And the fact that you have the audacity to bring this up I say more power to you, and I like the way you talk, Joe. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it, and uh, I can't thank you enough for for being available this morning to answer some of these questions. My pleasure. You have a great one. Stay safe.